Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. You know, it's always interesting to hear how different authors empathize with their characters, particularly when their characters aren't necessarily the best people. Today, we've got two authors on the pod who wrote books involving young teens during World War II. In a bit, we'll hear from the acclaimed author Yi and Lee talking about her new book, The Book of Goose. But first, as a point of comparison, I want to play this interview for you from 2014. It's between NPR's Arun Roth and the author Anthony Dower, who had just written his book, All the Light We Cannot See, which would eventually win the 2015 Pulitzer for fiction. It's about a blind girl who takes refuge in in rural France during the war, and a boy who becomes a Nazi. And in this interview, Doer says something interesting about evil and how it works and how it's not something that happens in an instant, but is instead a matter of degrees. Is there anything left to say about World War II? There are so many books written about the war. Supposedly, if you drop them on Germany, it would cover the whole country. I'm not sure if that's true. But I thought, you know, why do I need to add one more? And for me, I just thought I would try to dwell very specifically on these two children uh, as they move through the war. That's writer Anthony Doerr. And the children he's talking about are the protagonists in his new novel, All the Light We Cannot See. Dor is exploring familiar history through unfamiliar perspectives, hoping you can see the world from the viewpoint of these two children. He admits that was a challenge for one of them, a young boy named Werner who becomes a Nazi. I asked Dor to talk first about Werner's counterpart, the French girl Marie. She's a sightless girl. She loses her sight at the age of six. Her father works at the Natural History Museum in Paris and is the master of the locks there in charge of thousands upon thousands of locks. I like to think of him as a loving father. He helps her learn to see in all the ways she cannot see. And in 1940, as I'm sure most folks know, and the Germans come pounding into Paris in June of 1940. Uh, lots and lots of things change very quickly, and he has to flee uh, with his daughter Marie to uh, the town in Brittany called Saint-Malo. And let, let, let's talk about Werner because we see the process of, of him becoming a Nazi, but at the same time, he's a boy. Yeah, I mean, he's an orphan. Um, he grows up in a little coal mining town called Solferein near Essen, Germany. And um, Werner is drawn, uh, he finds a radio as a young boy and is drawn to electronics. He finds out that he's quite gifted at fixing and repairing them. And this turns out to be a ticket out of the mines. And in some ways, he thinks maybe a ticket towards a larger life for himself. But unfortunately, he goes to an elite paramilitary school um, that really funnels boys into the elite of the Nazi party. So while they might be teaching him quality engineering one hour, the next hour they're teaching him just awful things, you know, eugenics or just, you know, straight up military combat stuff. So uh, he ends up making some difficult and poor choices. But I hope the reader stays with him and finds herself implicated morally, even if as she finds herself maybe cheering for Werner and realizing what that, and what that means to root for him. Well, it, it, what you see with him and experience with him, it's in a way what I think a lot of young Germans experienced in World War II. You have a generation of boys who are taught to turn off their humanity. You got it. Yes. And um, yeah, part of the reason the book took me so long, you know, the book took me 10 years to make was uh, all the research for that was harrowing, you know, trying to understand, you know, not just about the Holocaust and what was happening on the Eastern Front, but all these insidious ways the propaganda was worked into the minds of poor people in Germany, um, you know, particularly through radio, these people's receivers, these state-subsidized receivers that really was the only radio a middle-income or a lower-income family could afford, 
you know, that was incapable of shortwave and really could only receive two or three big national stations just hammering this nationalism into the heads of poorer people. You're touching on an aspect of the book that uh, appeals to a lot of us working here, this recognition, almost a celebration of, of the power of radio. Great. Hooray. I'm glad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, originally the whole idea for the book came for me. I was on a train uh, heading into Penn Station from Princeton, New Jersey, and we started going underground. And the man uh, in front of me was on a, a cell phone call. This was in 2004, and his call dropped. And he got kind of angry. He got a little embarrassingly angry, unreasonably angry. And uh, I just remember thinking, you know, what he's forgetting, really what we're all forgetting all the time is that this is a miracle. You know, he's using this little receiver and transmitter, this little radio in his pocket to send messages at the speed of light, you know, rebounding between towers to somebody maybe thousands of miles away. He might have been talking to somebody in Madagascar for all I knew, you know, and for me, that's a miracle. So I wanted to originally the real central motivation for the book was to try to conjure up a time when hearing the voice of a stranger in your home was a miracle. I'm, I'm wondering where this novel came from because it, it seems what I know of you far outside of your experience. You're, you're a relatively young novelist. You're from the middle of America. You didn't grow up close to this history that, that you're writing about. What led you here? For about a year after hearing that conversation on the train, I did not know where or yet quite when I was going to set the book. All I knew is that I had a blind girl reading a story to a boy over the radio. And it wasn't until uh, a year later I was on book tour in France and stopped at the seaside town of Saint-Malo. It's this walled citadel right on these aqua waters of the English Channel, um, you know, walking on the ramparts after a whole day of exploring all these granite mansions and walking the low tide beaches. And I told my editor, you know, it's amazing to be in such an old city. And he said, well, actually, in uh, August of 1944, this city was almost entirely destroyed by American bombs. And first, what compelled me so much was that in a decade of rebuilding, those kind of memories, that level of violence could be so written over that, um, you know, a foolish tourist like me couldn't necessarily even notice it. I thought that was dazzling. And and then secondly, this idea that there were all these still untold stories tucked within the D-Day story. I feel like, you know, here this was two months after D-Day and the a allies had penetrated almost halfway to Paris. And yet here was the citadel where Germans were still holding out. Those things really drew drew me into the story. And before I knew it, I thought, well, here's a time when radio was important, and here's a place that I feel really connected to and vitally interested in. And, and where did Werner come from then? Werner came really ultimately from a photograph. There was a photograph in Life magazine of a boy uh, who was 15 years old when the United States Ninth Army took a town called Reichtenbach. And the photo is of the boy. He's clearly in a uniform that's too large. He's 15 years old. His father had died in 38, and his mother had died in 44. And he had joined the Luftwaffe, the Air Force, to support himself. And uh, the photo was the first time, really, in my adulthood that I had thought to empathize with a German citizen in the narratives growing up from the war. Germans were primarily evil. And I thought, you know, here I've got this sympathetic girl. Um, you know, I'm going to see if I can make this boy growing up in Germany try to understand how evil is something of degrees. Step by step, we go toward it. And it's not necessarily, you know, let, let me back up one second. Right now, we're at this incredible time. I feel really passionately about this, that we're losing thousands of people for whom World War II is memory every day. 
in another decade, there will be nobody left, very, very few people left who can remember the war. And so history becomes something that becomes slightly more malleable. And I worry about how my own sons, my 10-year-old sons, are learning about the war, whether it's through video games or the History Channel, often, in, particularly politicians, they're often presenting the war as a very black and white narrative. And I, I worry that that's dangerous. I think it's important to empathize with uh, how citizens come to a certain point. And you know that, that might be a more meaningful way to try to avoid what had happened. That's author Anthony Doerr. His new book is called All the Light We Cannot See. It's out now. The main characters in Yi Yun Lee's new novel, The Book of Goose, are these two girls who aren't great people. They're liars and fabricators, but they're also extremely good storytellers in their own ways. And in this interview with NPR Scott Simon, it's interesting to hear Lee talk about how their expansive imagination, which helps them get ahead in life, is also the thing that lets them be absolutely ruthless and merciless to the people they hurt. Agnes and Fabien are partners in crime, as children can so sweetly be. They're 14 and growing up in a small town in France after World War II, where they look up into the sky. This Fabienne makes up stories and Agnes writes them out. Fabienne was eyes and ears for both of us, she says. With the encouragement of Monsieur Devaux, an older man in the village, they turn their stories into a book, which is published and celebrated in Paris, then London, as a haunting portrayal of children's lives in post-war France. And then they hatch another plot in real life. The Book of Goose is a new novel from Iyun Lee winner of the Penn Hemingway Award and author of six works of fiction, including the story collection, A Thousand Years of Good Prayers. She joins us now from Princeton, New Jersey, where she teaches. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. These stories that that Agnes and Fonvienne make up can be pretty jarring, can't they? Well, that's their life, which is, you know, post-World War II French countryside. So, yes, they are jarring. They are about animals, dead babies, live animals, and, you know, crazy people. But I don't think the girls find it jarring for themselves because Mm -hmm. that's how children experience life. It's just part of their world. And why does Fabienne insist on Agnes being identified as the only author? Yes. So that's the mysterious part about this young girl who has all the imagination to make up all the stories. And yet her instinct is she's not pretty enough. She's not compliant enough for the Mm -hmm. world to know her as a girl author. Well, her friend Agnes has all the, you know, capacity of catering what the world needs. So she says, you know, let's make this a two-person game. I write, you are the name of the book. And and Monsieur Devaux, he's he's written a lot in his life, but never been published. What does he see in the stories that the young girls show him? So here is an older man who is, you know, truly, as you said, he is an author, unpublished. Mm-hmm. And I think he understands this need for the countryside stories for how, you know, the French children lived mm-hmm. after World War II. So I think he is, as you said, the first salesperson. He has a, you know, instinct for the market. So that's why he 
decides to help these girls, you know, push these girls out as child prodigy. Without giving too much away, they they the girls find it easy to cast Monsieur Devoe as a, uh, I'll just put it this way, an unsympathetic character. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, these girls are imaginative. They're also ruthless. You know, there mm-hmm. is some mercilessness within them. And again, that's from where they are, is these two have a world. Anybody coming into the world, they send an invitation, but they expel Monsieur Duvu as ready as they invite him in. You know, it's a very girlhood, you know, phenomenon. Yeah, to take things in and cast them off in the same minute. Yes, yes. Except, of course, it has real-life consequences for Monsieur Depot. It does. And, you know, later in, in the book, I don't want to give too much away, there's a, you know, echo, there's a, there, there's a reiteration of that. But these girls, they don't think about what they do to other lives. As you said, you yeah. know, lives are changed because of what they have done. You were born in Beijing and, and came to the U.S., as I do the math, in your late 20s. Mm-hmm. Uh, what led you to imagine these two young girls in post-war France? You know, people say, why French countryside? And sometimes I think, why not, right? Perfectly valid answer. <laughs> yes, yes. And in a way, I don't particularly think this is a French story. This is mm-hmm. more about a girlhood story. As children going through 12 13, 14, they're on the cusp of becoming, you know, adults and they still maintain their, you know, the childlike world. That's an interesting age. And especially two girls close in a relationship around that age, they can make up an entire world. They can make up an entire life for themselves. Yeah. And I'm really attracted to that age and the girls, in, you know, during that transition period. I have um, I've read interviews with you where you talk about going through a very tough emotional period. Yes, yes, and I I suppose this was, you know, it's it's a lo- it's a long few years. I myself experienced suicidal depression, and then I lost a child to suicide. Yeah, totally personal question, mm-hmm. and in a sense, the least important question, but. Do you think we read that in your work now, somehow? Well, I suppose you can never say no to these, you know, possibilities. I'm sure an author's life bleeds into her work. And, I mean, clearly the Book of Goose is not autobiographical because it's about French girls. But I, I think an author, in a way, is porous, right? Our life bleeds into work, and work also sort of bleeds back into our life. So, so I maintain that porousness to allow this communication between myself and the characters. Your novel keeps raising a question and and doesn't have a facile uh, or reassuring answer, which is why do writers write? I mean, fame. Money, revenge, joy? Or all of them above? Yeah. Yes. I suppose for Fabienne and Agnes, Fabienne did say at the beginning of their writing the book, she wanted to be known, you know, not like a fame wise, but she wanted to, she wanted the world 
to know how their life was like. That's her, you know, explanation. I think that's probably one motivation some of the writers write. And as you said, you know, fame, you know, Agnes went on to become a child prodigy, you know, poster child, um, you know, on the magazine cover. But also loss, you know, <laughs> with, with the two, by gaining something, they have also lost a lot of things in their lives. You Including know, each the, other. And yeah, that's the most precious thing they have is each other. And in the end, they, you know, they have to endure that eternal loss of each other. Yoon Lee, her new novel is The Book of Goose. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash books. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Mason Tran and Jeeva Govirma and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Hiba Ahmad, Shannon Rhodes, Courtney Dorning, Connor Donovan, Taylor Haney, Rina Advani, Hafsa Fatima, Dee Parvaz, Becky Sullivan, Steve Liktai, Ashley Lizenby, and Hadil Al-Salji. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening.